0: You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, the podcast that celebrates the cultural connections between the UK and New York. I'm your host, British diplomat Hannah Young. As editor-in-chief of Harper's Bazaar, Glenda Bailey garnered international acclaim for her vision. Combining high fashion with intelligent in-depth features, her editorial approach has marked the magazine as one of the most prominent fashion publications in the world. Glenda was appointed to the role in 2001, having served as editor-in-chief of the US edition of Marie Claire since 1996. Her directional leadership played a pivotal role in growing the magazine's readership over the years, and Glenda has received a large number of industry accolades throughout her career, including two successful awards as Woman's Magazine Editor of the Year and Editor's Editor of the Year, along with several consumer magazine awards and recognition Amnesty International for her dedicated coverage of human rights affairs. At the start of 2019 she was made a Dame Commander of the British Empire by her late Queen Elizabeth II and Glenda remains an active great ambassador for the British government. Glenda also recently collaborated with the luxury brand Peruvian Connection to create a capsule collection including alpaca knits, shearling coats, cozy sweaters I'm actually wearing her gorgeously warm wool trousers right now, which is perfect as a New York winter wardrobe staple. Glenda, welcome to Brits and the Bigger. Hello.
1: <laughs> I'm so happy to be here.
0: So glad to have you uh, on the podcast. And I would love for you to start by telling us how you got into fashion the industry.
1: It's an unlikely tale, really. I always say that I am a fairy tale that came true. I come from Derby, come from a working class background. My parents really taught me the importance of working hard. And my mum used to have three or four jobs just to make sure that she was able to give as the little luxuries of life. My father was a laborer, worked really hard, tremendously charismatic man who loved to tell stories. It was a background which is unlikely for a fashion career, because there was no one in the family that ever was involved in fashion or luxury. But every single Thursday, I used to receive the weekly Jackie magazine. And my dad used to pick it up on his his way home from work. It was my treat. And I used to look at those pages. And to me, it opened up a world of glamour and excitement and of fashion. And so that's where my interest started, which led to lots and lots of Saturday jobs because I wanted to buy myself clothes. <laughs> and then I realised because I was lucky enough to go to grammar school and Everyone was wanting me to to work in something more business-based. When I first went to university, the plan was that I studied economics. I knew enough about economics to realise that's not the way to make money, that I should specialise in in what I love. And it's really thanks to my long-term beloved (laughs) Steve Sumner, who's an artist. He gave me the courage to think, not to go down the academic route but to to think about the arts and so I did a foundation course in Blackpool and then did a a degree at Kingston University and and then realized I was a terrible fashion designer so I had to Uh, become a journalist. (laughs)
0: Talk to me a little bit more about that. What were you studying and, and how did you segue into journalism?
1: First and foremost, I had to choose a university that would pay for all the fabrics i'd put myself made enough money by working in a, a factory that made laundry for marks and spencers for a whole year doing six days a week and so i had enough savings put aside to put me through university really it was a tough way of of getting into the industry i knew that the two best colleges for a degree was St. Martin's. But if you go to St. Martin's, you have to buy your own fabric based in the center of London. And so rents are almost impossible. If you go to Kingston, it has still to this day, I think a 99% success rate of getting their uh, students' jobs. When I got there, I realized why it was such a well-run course. Its connections with industry are so good. And every single project you did meant that you had an opportunity to win prize money, which meant that you got to travel and got got to meet designers. And that was incredible luxury. But I realized other people on the course were so much more talented than I was and that I wasn't going to be the next Karl Lagerfeld. So I decided to specialize in an area that I felt confident. That was writing and discovered a love of editing and Magazines. So I did my final year dissertation on IPC magazines and was how the story began.
0: That's amazing. And have you always been a writer?
1: never could write well enough for either of the titles I've worked on. And I can't write well enough for Marie Claire or for Harper's Bazaar. But I think knowing that, knowing what your strengths are, and knowing how to make the most of other people's talents means that you can, you can become an editor. That's why I, I honestly believe anybody's an editor. That's why I love technology. I love social media is because everybody has an opinion. And if you want to put your views out there, you can do.
0: What makes for a successful editor, do
1: you think? Finding great talent. Gut instinct. I'll give you a great example. I once got, um, when I was on Marie Claire, I got a letter from a girl that said she really wanted to work with me. I was her favorite editor-in-chief. She'd followed my career and all she did was want to work on Mirabella. The only problem was obviously I was editor-in-chief of Marie Claire and never worked on Mirabella. Now anybody else would have put that letter in the bin. I was kind of fascinated because the rest of the letter and the CV was so impressive. So I called her in. And she handled the problem so well that she impressed me. She's now an editor in chief herself and has been for many wow. years. My career, the thing I'm most proud of is I've uh, now up to, I think, 17 editor in chiefs have come from the people that have worked wow. with me, which I think is some sort of record yeah. and something I'm super proud of because I've always chosen people with their incredible talent, and um, it's wonderful to see that
0: their careers have developed. Wow, that's quite a legacy, actually. And going back to your early career, so you, you became an editor pretty young.
1: I've only ever done the job of editor-in-chief. I started at the top, and I think the key is staying there. And indeed, I did stay there for 33 years.
0: Because, <laughs> you know, I imagine in, in journalism, typically you'd sort of Start at the bottom. How did you get that
1: early break? I'm a great believer in working your way up. Is way overestimated. I think it's so important to have a vision and be confident. And if you believe in something, just just make it happen. And that's what happened to me. My mother had died in my first year at uh, university, and then I was only out of school about. Six months and then my father sadly got cancer and I didn't want him to die in hospital like my mother had Steve, my beloved, came home with me to Derby and we both nursed my father um, until he died And um, as a result we lost our jobs It was the best thing I ever did just taught me the importance of what really matters and your priorities and I came back on a coach from Derby to London with Steve and two of my friends who went to the same school that I did and who were working in the civil service and I basically said to them no I'm going to get a fashion magazine now and you can come and work on it that's exactly what happened I got off the coach I went to a call box public call box I called the head of IPC Magazine's luxury department. And I got a meeting with him the next day. I spent that evening typing up a proposal of just two sheets of paper saying what I would do if I was given a fashion magazine. And um, the next day I presented it. And as they say, the rest is history.
0: Wow. That's amazing. What What a kind of profound experience actually
1: and one of my friends who came back on the coach with me um actually editor-in-chief as well today so it goes to show you can you can you can just make things happen and that's what I want to encourage people who are listening to this broadcast is that never say never and believe in yourself and and just be determined and keep on going don't give up because it can happen, miracles do happen every day.
0: Well, and your 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 career is clearly testament to that, which is so impressive.
1: Steve also gave me the recommendation, if you don't bend, you'll break. And, and that's something that I think in a management role of any sort, it's so important to, to listen to other people's views and to make everybody part of the journey. And to enjoy that journey, we all work so hard, it's so important to to make it fun.
0: And I guess as an editor, that is presumably quite a big part of the job is trying to bring lots of different voices to to bear on a publication and to create an identity. And um, you launched Marie Claire, the British version of the very famous British publication. And it rose to a circulation of over 450,000.
1: Yes. I mean, it was the biggest selling Incredible. luxury fashion magazine in Britain. Yeah. And um, that was what's so amazing was we've got more advertising than our competitors put together. Um, so it was a commercial and a critical success mm-hmm. and, um, again, broke the rules. And I think that's that's also what I want to encourage other people to think about is just because it's something's been done a particular way in the past doesn't mean that it can't be done better in the future.
0: Tell me a little bit more about those rules and and where you felt like you stretched them or. Well, I think with Marie Claire, everyone
1: thought that either it should be a fashion magazine or a magazine that had social interest. To me, I was always very interested in women of the world. We only have one life, isn't it nice to know theirs? Proved that women's voices can really make a difference. Tony Blair actually said one of the reasons he won the election was he wanted the Marie Claire reader to vote for him because we. I wanted to bring in justice as to the pages of, of Marie Claire so that people would do something about it and and to change the law, to bring people to justice, criminals to justice, to basically um, to win Amnesty International Awards, bringing important subjects like genital mutilation, like honour killings, to a, a broader readership. I just gave women what they wanted to read about. Um, in, in a way that we could all feel that we could participate in helping other women in other times. Um, and it broke down the stereotypes. You know, I hate the idea that you have to be a certain look or you have to be a certain age or you have to come from a certain place. I think the more we can do to point out you don't have to be a certain type, you um you can find your own way.
0: And did you get pushback for that? Because I can imagine you're particularly in you know in those early moments you're you're fighting an industry that has started to build its foundations on that particular image?
1: I always judge everybody by what they do. I like to think that's how you act and what you manage to achieve that people should judge you by. It's too sad to think that you have to be a certain way to succeed. I think it's all to do with passion and energy and good spirit and having fun and just those qualities are way more important than looking a particular way or sounding. It's all about in praise of the individual. It was, again, breaking down those stereotypes and, and making re- people realize that you can, you can just enjoy fashion.
0: And Harper's Bazaar was the point at which you moved to the US, is that right?
1: I came from doing eight years at Marie Claire in Britain, and then they persuaded me to come to the States. One of my friends actually was extremely uh, sick. He he got a young man who had actually worked with me on, on Marie Claire in fact that one of the members of um that came with me on the coach he became very very sick and um and so I didn't want to come so I'd refused them several times and then sadly he became more sick and uh, we lost him and um and so I thought well life's too short made our decision to come to new york we thought we'd be here for 2 years and look at me now
0: <laughs> the amount of people from the uk we're just going to be here for 2 years and
1: well what i love about uh, living in new york is just the can do attitude often in britain we we're, we're brought up to think why we can't achieve something whereas here i think the difference is is everybody thinks that they can They can be a president, should they wish. And look, um, unfortunately, some people achieve that. (laughs) I really believe in giving people opportunity. Talent rises. From my side, the greatest part of my job has always been giving people opportunity and seeing them achieve things that they never ever thought they could achieve. Often people have said to me in the past, oh, you expect too much. And I've said, yes, and look what
0: I've got. I'm interested in um, that point about the difference in the cultures between the UK and the US. And you've you've obviously worked as an editor-in-chief in in both countries. Can you talk a little bit more about the similarities and the differences?
1: Coming from Britain, everyone used to say sex sold. In America, it's all about hair. Because if you think about it, um, in America, we, we don't have royalty. Um, the royals here are the celebrities. It's um, very much a culture based on, on glamour and looks. And so many women really love uh, beauty tips. And uh, But now, of course, I would argue as uh, great beauty companies have grown and become much more inclusive, it's much more similar to, to Britain
0: and how long were you at Harper's Bazaar for
1: 20 years
0: 20 years and talk to me about how the industry changed over that period and and you overseeing you know that magazine as you say one of the most iconic magazines in the world how did you have to adapt your vision or your style or your approach to 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 go with the trends or the curve
1: i'm obsessed with originality and
0: innovation And I get easily
1: bored. And so I wanted all the magazines that I've worked for um, to be memorable. And so I think um, when I first started, the star system was very much run by very forceful PRs saying that celebrities wouldn't do the things, crazy things that I wanted them to do. At Marie Claire, for example, I got Brooke Shields to do a trip off into... The snowy parts of the of the world, and indeed create an igloo against all odds. And um, yes, it is true. I nearly killed Brooke Shields because oh what, what she actually achieved building the igloo, but unfortunately the gas stove nearly exploded and she had to get out really quickly. And I'd read that um, Rihanna, who is so game, um, that she was a great swimmer. I asked her if she would consider swimming with sharks. And um, the video, you can go online to see it. Um, She was swimming and the cameraman's assistant caught the edge of one of the three 11-foot sharks. And they started to circle her, and we just got her out in the nick of time. People say, why do celebrities do this? Well, because they are creative individuals, and they they want to produce something that people have never seen before. Journalism, to make it exciting, you have to create the story. And I'm thrilled that all of the celebrities I've worked with have been very gung-ho in in wanting to produce ideas that are original. Um, And a a magazine like Harper's Bazaar is, you can have these aspirational images Mm -hmm which are iconic forever, at the same time these accessible pieces that you can just rush out and buy that are great value for money and that will become part of your personal style and you'll love forever. Mm. And I think that's the whole point of fashion and beauty. It's just making making people feel good about themselves. And it's not just when you produce um, the magazine, but as a result, an extension of, of the lifestyle. I now, mean, I'd been fortunate enough to have um, a lunch um, at the uh, store, a mess store in Paris on their garden roof terrace. And I looked down at my salad, and there was on the top of the salad a four leaf clover. It has to be the definition of luxury. I immediately took it off and, and I. <laughs>
0: Rest it for good luck. What do you think is the, the future direction of travel for the fashion industry? I feel like it's going through various revolutions, you know, including around climate and sustainability and diversity and inclusion. And I guess as a microcosm of all of the things that we're all working through in our respective sectors.
1: For the last about five years, when I was Harper's Bazaar, I, I said to everybody, fashion risks becoming unfashionable. And you could see it coming because there are more important issues um, that we need to take into consideration when we get dressed. And the environment, sustainability is very, very important. And um, too many people were just waking up to that idea. And if you're interested in the environment, you really need to think about the choices that you make. That's the reason why I got involved with Peruvian Connection was because here was a woman that for the last 50 years had been producing a tremendous collection from Peru. Um, and uh, the headquarters were actually in Kansas, in a, a farm in Kansas, um, but she had built up such an incredible liaison with many women workers that, um, over the last 50 years, have created their own factories and produced craftsmanship from Peru that had led to these great collections. And I wanted to highlight that and that the fa- fashion can be produced in a different way. And we don't have to keep doing it the same way because it's not working Alpaca is so much more sustainable than cashmere It's something so obvious And that's because as an animal they are so light on the earth And they can exist at extremely high altitude So lots of communities can actually It gives them an economic reason for staying put As opposed to trying to find jobs in the city so on every level, it's, it's finding a way to be able to make the fashion system work. And the best part of it is the consumer gets the reward because it's good quality for a good price. Yeah. How amazing is that? Yeah. As I said, I love breaking rules and proving that something can be done in a better way. Yeah. And uh, I think that's a really good example.
0: I uh, I wanted to, to, to end by asking you about your OBE, which you received for Journalism and Fashion in 2008, and then your Damehood in 2019. And just to hear from you what, what those honours meant to you.
1: Well, I was shaking so much. I, I just can't tell you the joy. I so appreciated all the work the royal family did. I mean, I think people somehow, they don't realise just what those calendars are like. And because I'm a trustee of the Royal Drawing School, I saw uh, with my own eyes just the amount of dedication that at the time it was the Prince of Wales. Now, of course, King Charles put into that school to make it happen and, and the good work that he did with the Prince's Trust. And again, helping so many young people that was at that time if you look back and now everybody's watched the crown so they've seen it he really um, broke the mold and he helped so many young people find their careers find their talent queen well i mean she just has so much dignity and to be able to meet these people and to be in buckingham palace with my family with Steve, who has seen me through all this transition was a tremendous honor. It was just joyous memories. And I couldn't believe the Queen was so knowledgeable. The fact she'd taken so much time to talk to me about Marie Claire and my work and the Amnesty International Awards and, and, and uh, then about Harper's Bazaar and the fact I was in New York. That attention to detail and there were many people getting honors. Um, Parkinson, for example, was there to learn about people. It showed just such an incredible generosity of spirit.
0: Wow. Well, Glenda, you've had such an impressive career and continue to have such an impressive career. Thank you so much for sharing some of those stories with us and thank you for coming on Brits in the Big Apple. I've loved it. Thank you so much. You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, brought to you by the British Consulate in New York. If you'd like to hear more about the work of the British Consulate, please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at UK in New York. Thank you for listening.